Well, welcome back to The Professor and the Hack for episode 49. I am the Hack, Hugh Remington, and with me as always, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen, uh, National G'day, Political Editor for the 10 Network and Professor of so many universities, it's hard to remember them all. Griffith, <laughs> UWA. How fascinating is it uh, when we look at the news poll, That's some of the new information as we record this. On the one hand, you've got stratospheric personal ratings for the Prime Minister. Nothing surprises me about that, really. You know, in a time of crisis, particularly when it's being pretty well handled all up, uh, that Australians get behind their leader. But what also does interest me is that despite that, the party vote, the two-party vote, is still at 50-50. I would have thought that they would have pushed ahead on that score rather than be sitting neck and neck with Labor, given how popular the Prime Minister is at the moment and how most of the perception seems to be that he's doing a pretty good job. So how do you explain that? Well, I guess I think it's some residual issues that the coalition and government have had for a while, despite their surprise historic win at the last election. That would be point number one. Perhaps some residual issues around their management of other things before now, you know, the Angus Taylor saga, some of the issues around Dutton, certainly the bushfires. And there's a forgiving of the leader, maybe, in a time of crisis and the whole Team Australia thing, let's get behind the leader, but not necessarily seeing that as a, a symbol of, of how the government has been travelling more generally. But it's, it is hard to explain. I mean, what do you think, Hugh? Well, he's up at Rudd levels almost at 68% mm. approval ratings. That's a sort of a, a Hawkean type. Uh, it is so interesting because you say that the public rallies around the leader in a time of crisis and uh, the bushfires over the summer were without question a time of crisis, particularly for the Eastern States. And uh, mm. uh, there was no rallying around uh, Scott Morrison and Scott Morrison didn't seem much interested in rallying around Australians at that time. So <laughs> th the relationship at that point was completely dysfunctional between the leader and mm. the country. Somehow he's changed that and that is uh, a great achievement for him. And he's done it, it seems, by being more willing to be collaborative. Uh, the other thing about it is that this is a crisis that affects absolutely everybody. A few people during the bushfire crisis might have had a look around and gone, oh, look, you know, I don't have anywhere near Bush. Uh, I'm right. She's right. No worries. My job's safe. Whereas this time around, I think everyone is completely mm. engaged. But you're quite right. There is a, it does seem strange that uh, far and away in the public perception, this, the greatest strength politically that the nation has is Scott Morrison, who saw that coming. And uh, from another point of view, I guess, is that uh, all those who said getting rid of Malcolm Turnbull was a good thing uh, may well be saying, well, there, there's your proof. Yeah, maybe. Well, I think they would have been saying that some time ago anyway, wouldn't they, when he won the last election? Because uh, I don't think most people other than Malcolm Turnbull now in his, in his writings think that he was actually going to win that election but i'm not know, so sure about that actually I, I think he could have won that last election um he, because one thing he would have gone into the election without having uh, a leadership upheaval <laughs> because mm. he would have still been the leader so he wouldn't have had that lead in his saddlebags but certainly there were people determined to ensure that uh, he didn't get that opportunity and they and they got it but that's a bit of true a but yeah yeah but what i find interesting though is like you you point hugh to you know the stratospheric ratings of rudd uh, or Hawke, and you know, now Morrison is in that in that zone with his satisfaction rating and his better Prime Minister ratings at the moment. But when Rudd had it, uh, and he was up at these sort of lofty heights, the two-party vote, I think at one point, hit something insane. Like, I think it got to 61-39 on the two-party vote against the hapless Brendan Nelson. Uh, but it was certainly in the high 50s for a very long time. That included against Malcolm Turnbull when Kevin Rudd 
was so popular. But here we are with a similarly popular Scott Morrison in a time of crisis, but with a 50-52 party vote. It, it, does, it does point to something that we haven't seen before. I mean, we've mm. seen some of it before, but not all of it before, built like that. And, um, I mean, Hawke fell off his, I think he was missing 75% was as far as he got. Uh, Rudd briefly topped that, I think. But um, Hawke went a long time after that. He, he, his, his personal figures declined over time, but he remained there through several elections after that point, mm-hmm. Rudd, of course, famously didn't. And I always saw a cautionary tale in George Bush Sr., who after taking over from, uh, yes. uh, from Reagan, and, uh, and then it was actually, history seems to have recalled that it was Reagan who won the Cold War, but in fact that happened in George Bush, the first presidency in 1989. And then he went off to um, box Saddam Hussein around the years when uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and they mm. pushed him out of Kuwait. And at that point, um, uh, George Bush Sr.'s ratings were unheard of for how high they were. In the recession. Hit. And when in the election the hit in 1992, he was gone for all money and beaten by some bloke from Arkansas called Bill Clinton in his first term. So anything can fall. Anything can fall. Not that I'm wishing it upon Scott Morrison. Good luck to him. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah. Really interesting, though, Hugh, because definite potential parallels there when you think about what brought George Bush Sr. undone by the time of the 92 election in part, which was, of course, the recession that America subsequently went through and and the, the toughness of the economy and Bill Clinton talking about it being the economy that was the focus. Uh, it's the economy stupid, I think, was the phrase that he ended up going with. But the other half of that, in fairness uh, to George Bush Sr., he also, and this could actually happen to a conservative side of politics here as much as it happened to George Bush then, uh, the independent Perot that ran against him, uh, he, without him in the mix, there's a fair chance under their electoral system that he still might have squeaked over the line against Bill Clinton. That really hurt him as well, because I think he carved away something like 15% of the vote. Uh, he, was a, he was a very wealthy man running as an independent, but a right-wing leaning independent. And, and it meant that George Bush, the dissatisfaction that he copped, wasn't just from people that returned to the Democrat fold, but people who were more ardent Republicans who could never bring themselves to vote for a Democrat still had a, a, a position where they could issue a protest vote. Of course, here, when that happens, we have preferential voting, don't we? So it, it eventually often will get back to the major party. But over there, it's first past the post. If you don't vote for George Bush, he never sees your vote again. Yes, and so Ralph Nader, uh, famously uh, the figure that stopped uh, Al Gore from winning uh, against right. Bush. Yeah. Well, we can go back through all this sort of stuff. Because we have Clive Palmer, <laughs> We're going to get into the modern a, day. <laughs> a rich outsider who managed to uh, have some influence over the last election. On it goes. Uh, so we're now in a situation where the states are quite significantly split over schools. Uh, mm-hmm. The increasing evidence, because there's been more and more time for uh, the scientists, the epidemiologists, to get in there and have a look at uh, what the transmission rate is with kids. The evidence seems more and more secure that kids uh, are not a, a vector of significance in transmitting the virus. The arguments for schools returning are getting stronger. Uh, Queensland is one of the holdouts, and, uh, and they're saying, look, they want uh, another couple of weeks to really examine that before they start to go back. Other places are going back already. Um, so uh, this is one of these situations where we've talked about the state commonwealth issue, the national cabinet, who's the boss, who gets to decide what. But as the states point out, we run the schools, we'll make our own decisions. But it does seem as if the uh, science is increasingly reaffirming as more evidence comes in, what was that early judgment, and that schools are not 
uh, the issue. So is this what we're going to see happen increasingly is that the schools are going to go back? Look, I, I think that's the direction it's going unless the second wave hits, of course, and then or new evidence comes to light about the transmission rates amongst children. I, I, I want to issue a cautionary statement, though, when it comes to this research out of New South Wales that is supporting this national uh, medical suggestion that schools are, are safe and students can, co- can go back. Uh, this, this is, it's not necessarily as clear cut as some of the arguers for the return of schools would like to suggest as much as all of us, let's be clear, would love our kids to get back to school for our own mental health, just quietly, um, quite apart from their educational value, their mental health, their social wellbeing, a lot of dysfunctional families. There's plenty of reasons to try and do it. But my cautionary note about this research out of New South Wales, and some um, epidemiologists have talked about this as well, but this is a research question. The research is based on a very limited sample, and it's a distorted sample. Let me explain why. And it is also not yet peer reviewed. Now, I'm not so concerned about it not yet being peer reviewed in a scholarly sense because that's something uh, that has a time lag. What I am more concerned about, though, is the potential data inaccuracy in a study like this because this the study was of New South Wales schools at the tail end of first term and what the transmission rates were then. And I think the argument was that there were something like 18 cases across New South Wales of, of people in schools that that got coronavirus, nine of whom were teachers, nine of whom were students. And then the study goes into the hundreds of other students that that crossed over those paths and, and there not being the transmission rates that, that there was necessarily a worry around. Where I've got a concern, though, is the distorting of the sample is this. It was based on schools at a time where somewhere between a quarter and a third of students weren't going anyway because parents were deselecting from the school system unofficially in New South Wales. And as a result of that, oh, and also, by the way, there was social distancing in place in those schools during that time. So you've got social distancing in place and schools sitting at somewhere between 67 and 75% capacity rather than 100% capacity. Now, for that to be the sample where there is lower transmission than amongst adults, ipso facto schools can go back without social distancing, according to the Prime Minister, and at 100% capacity, you're in a sense comparing apples and oranges between what the study found and the terms of that study versus what is now being recommended. And I'm no medical expert, but I am a public policy expert. And this is actually more of a public policy analysis than a medical analysis. And yet the Prime Minister keeps standing up and saying, all the medical advice says X, Y, and Z. Well, this is actually a public policy advice. I agree. Uh, I agree that it is a good study and that it suggests that we should be moving back towards a return to schools. But if the argument is let's not rush to failure, I actually don't think rushing back into a return to schools based on this study, given all of the caveats of it, is necessarily the right public policy call. And another issue that we've got to try to resolve is is what happens when there are households where kids are going off to schools and back in that household are vulnerable people, uh, whether they're uh, elderly people living under the same roof or situations like my own where, where I have a family member, my wife, who's, who's got virtually no immune system. And those, so therefore, uh, you can't do guesswork on this. You've got to get it right. And, and there well, may what, be what decisions. are you going to, what do you, I mean, this is quite personal, but what are you going to do, Hugh? I mean, it's, you know, does you, does does your 
child go back to school in this situation, given your wife's predicament? I mean, that's sure. So we've got three school age kids, including two uh, two at primary school, and we'll Mm. we're going to take the judgments. We we took the kids out early, and um, because we we couldn't bring coronavirus into the house without there being sure. Uh, a very, very strong risk to my wife um, in her current uh, state. So um, so we'll just take more, more advice from her oncologists and others uh, as, to, as to whether she could withstand, she's still going through chemo, any risk yeah. from the kids. But I think we're going to take a conservative view. Our, our strategic goal is to have her alive at the end of the year. And... Um, yeah. And and that's going to mean we might make decisions that are not mainstream decisions, but 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 you know. Oh, but very understandable. Very deeply thought out decisions, just to say. Um, and, 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 and 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 not not contradictory, I should say, Hugh. Those decisions, uh, if that's the path you go, is not actually, in fairness to the government, contradictory to what they're talking about, because they do carve out exceptions, don't they? Whether it's for older teachers or people with parents and carers with uh, immune deficiencies and so forth. So you, you're you're not if you like. You're not taking the mainstream decision that the government wants, but you're also not violating uh, the terms, if you like, not, not that it would matter if it were, uh, of, of, of what the ambit of what they're suggesting. No, I mean, but the only thing about that is that it puts an extra pressure on schools once the kids are back in the classrooms to mm. then teach them as you normally would. That's a demanding enough job, but also uh, have the capacity to teach online kids who, for a variety of family reasons, are staying away. Um, do they have the bandwidth to do all of that and for that to be a useful educational experience? All of this is in the mix. Um, and th- those are family decisions and difficult times ahead. Uh, I think we're probably going to have to take a break just for a moment. There's a lot to talk about, though. There's uh, the banks starting to now reveal in real numbers uh, what the cost of this is to them. Mm. We've got the tracing app. Uh, we've got travel. People start to talk about when might that start to happen? Will New Zealand be first? And if so, when? Um, let's take a quick break, uh, Peter. Back in a moment. I'm Angela Bishop, and for the past 30 years, I've been lucky enough to interview some of the funniest, loveliest, and zaniest celebrities around. There have been some cracker interviews, but what you see on TV is usually just a fraction of what's actually recorded. I've been looking back on some of my favourite interviews from the last three decades, and you're in for a treat. You're going to hear the best bits, worst bits, edited, unedited, all with a bit of a backstory from me. Find out what went off before the cameras went on. This is Starstruck, with me, Ange Bishop. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to episode 49 of um, The Professor and the Hack. And if you're listening to this, and I, and I don't know many of you have been with us for, for over a year now on this, uh, on, on this podcast, I, I just hope, uh, just between us and you, that you're doing okay, because uh, they are mm. tough times. Um, speaking of tough times, uh, the NAB has revealed the cost just in the last short time, before we go to air, of uh, you know, a drop of basically 50% of profits, uh, you know, carving out billion dollar losses. We're seeing, by the way, at a federal budget level, these expectations now as the bank economists are starting to weigh in. They're not all in exact agreement on precise numbers, but the general consensus seems to be around a deficit this year of $100 billion or so, and a larger one in the next financial year. Uh, what's your sense, Peter, of, um, of how this is going to work both in the public and the private sector? As, as we still don't have a vaccine, as we still don't have a cure? 
Well, I mean, we're going to uh, we're going to see a, a huge hit to the to the economy, and and I guess governments are going to have to make decisions around where the balance lies between minimising that hit uh, versus maintaining the best possible health outcomes. Uh, and I think what we are starting to see, with I think I have to say more community acceptance of this than was there perhaps in weeks gone by when people were more scared. We're starting to see a community acceptance of decision-making around wearing the health cost to some people to reap the benefits economically of being able to open things up a little bit more. And so what you're saying there is that, is that in opening up the economy, there's an acceptance in the community that some people will die. I, I think what's really happening here, Hugh, is that the government is deciding, yes, people with immune deficiencies uh, and people who are elderly, more of them will die as a result of the decision to start opening the economy up slowly. But they're banking on having got this virus under control, that that increase will not be substantial so that it won't be a complete rocking of our culture and our society. However, uh, they're banking on the benefits of doing that being more broad for the larger fragment of society. That is to say, people's mental health, uh, people's overall well-being, maintaining jobs, keeping the economy ticking along. Those difficult choices are definitely being made. What do you think will be the thing which signals that they've opened up too much? It seems as though we've now used the time to get extra intensive care beds. New South Wales is talking about having up to 4,000 ready, which is way in excess of any demand that's actually come through now. So does it seem secure at this stage that whatever, even if it gets out of hand, and God help us, we hope it doesn't, that we won't get anywhere near the scene seen in New York in particular, in Italy and others, where, where simply the hospital system becomes overwhelmed? Oh, certainly if, if a second or a third wave resulted in us going through a period like we've seen in some of these countries around the world uh, where they're overwhelmed, that would be utter, utter failure in the decision structure around the government deciding to open things up. So I, I don't expect that, um, but I don't think there's any doubt that if it goes down that path, then the government has absolutely failed in its decision-making. Where it's greyer is I think there will be a second wave and possibly a third and a fourth. Where it's greyer, though, to make a decision around this, whether they've succeeded or failed, is the extent of damage done by that second or third or fourth wave. Now, we're already getting warned by leaders that this will happen at some point, that there will be more deaths as things open up and there will be more infections and the rates will rise. That's a decision because they've decided that they can't contain this. So they've, well, sorry, they can contain it, but they can't eradicate it. So New Zealand is pushing for eradication uh, and the Australian government, however, have decided, and, and I, I know this from talking to people, by the way, this isn't my supposition, that they've decided we don't think we can achieve eradication, so we're going to try to achieve suppression. And if we happen to eradicate it on the way through, happy days. Maybe that's a good thing. Now, one of the breaks that seems to be happening here is Victoria seems to be aiming for eradication with their harder policy lines on this, whereas the rest of the country and the Commonwealth is aiming for suppression rather than... But Victoria can't do it on its own. I mean, unless they lock off oh, the I agree. and I stop agree. travels, there's no such thing as eradication within a country where the internal borders are porous, surely. I think, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. I mean, it's, it's possible because I think the level of tolerance for, for states having 
stronger isolation powers than they might otherwise in a normal federated environment uh, are there because of COVID-19. However, I, I agree with you. I think I think one state trying for that when others aren't is folly. You do need a consistent approach on this. And critical to this, and the government's argument is the COVID Safe app uh, released on Sunday uh, by later that evening. The Health Minister, Greg Hunt, was able to put out a press release saying that uh, already a million downloads had happened, I think by about 10.30 on Sunday evening. Call me cynical. Um, you sort of suspect that press release was written before the announcement. Uh, they were going <laughs> to declare it. You have to build a sense of momentum. Uh, if you could... Have you downloaded it? I haven't. Uh, I'm uh, wary of it. I'm less opposed to it as I was, partly because... Uh, We'll put it this way. I, I, I'm persuaded by Chris Bowen, the uh, Labor frontbencher, who uh, says that he has. Most, a lot of Labor figures have, have tweeted out that they are uh, signing up for this. But Bowen's argument is that he wants the legislation, because we haven't seen legislation around this yet, obviously, that'll come next month. Uh, but he wants in that legislation that the information can only be accessed by state health officials and only for the purpose of contact tracing. And that, I think, matters in a way because there's so great a distrust of the security apparatus that has been built up by yeah. Peter Dutton, a man who, as we've said previously, I have the deepest suspicions about his motives and his intentions. I think he's a divider. And I think it's under Peter Dutton that uh, we wind up having illegal... Uh, police raids on unlawful warrants into the underpants drawers of journalists in pursuit of leaks about matters where there is no great public interest at stake beyond the pride of public servants and people operating their own game at the top ends of the governmental structures of Australia. And that's basically what happened in the Annika Smithis case. Uh, I think that the constant searching for more means to gain security access over our lives at a federal level has been really deleterious to us as a nation in the name of anti-terrorism and various other things. And uh, I can hear arguments on both sides. I'm alive to the arguments on all sides. But if it's left to state health officials only for the purpose of contact tracing, if that is in the legislation, when we finally get there, I'll come across to it. Yeah, and I don't disagree with, uh, with, with your concerns about it or indeed with the idea that it goes to the states and their health officials rather than the Commonwealth. Uh, I've um, moved around on this quite a bit, actually, because I can see all the different arguments in, in all the different directions. I ended up downloading the app uh, the night that it came out uh, and registering as well, simply because I just decided... I, I, I think... I, I stand by my, my criticism, which is that I think it certainly should uh, have... If they felt that it was so important, it should have been compulsory. Uh, and the fact that they're not prepared to make it compulsory at one level suggests that a lot of people can make a very valid decision to say, well, it can't be that important then, so I'm not going to do it. I also see the arguments about not doing it because of concerns, uh, like some of which you've raised, Hugh. Uh, I also wonder about its effectiveness just quietly. I mean, you actually have to be in someone else's Bluetooth range for 15 minutes for this thing to actually work. Now, to me, that's patently absurd. Uh, it's it, you know the, I don't know how many people I'm actually around for 15 minutes. Uh, I, I could probably name them all for God knows how long. Maybe that says something about me, but and people's tolerance of being around me. But I, I just to me that's too long if this thing's to be effective. But the reason I decided to download it in the end was I realised 
uh, and actually our colleague, it was Lisa Wilkinson who convinced me to do it. It was ahead of doing the project one night and I was sort of explaining everything I think is wrong with the app, all of which she was uh, taking mostly an agreement to. However, she didn't see the intellectual leap to then say, I therefore won't download it. And she just basically called me pig headed <laughs> and stubborn and refusing to download it because I was being told that I should uh, by a government who I thought was ineffective in the race. Which, which the goes to the argument the against thing. compulsoriness, which is uh, compulsion, which is your, um, uh, your other sort of approach to that, is that when you tell people that it's compulsory, that will bring some people across the line. Other people will just find ways to get around that because it's so easy to get around it. You just leave your phone at home. And the other thing I understand technically, uh, or I've certainly seen the arguments that are made technically, is that um, it can't actually, the business about 1.5 metres, it's, it's, it's a blunter instrument than that. Uh, mm. if, if you, the, the, your app, your phone doesn't know if someone's within 1.5 meters, it simply knows if it's in Bluetooth range. Uh, and, and sometimes that's somebody on the other side of a wall, Hugh. It could be. never could even be, met, seen, no, nothing, you know. It's all of that sort of stuff. And, uh, and the other thing is, is it say, if you're in someone's close proximity for, for seven minutes, uh, they walk away. For, for a minute, they come back for another seven minutes. This could happen in an office environment or something, go away for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you never meet the 15 minute threshold. You could be in a room, a work colleague with someone who's totally full of coronavirus. And in fact, uh, you know, I don't know that the app is going to pick that up. I, I don't well, know <laughs> how the detail of that is going to pick up. I don't, I don't, I don't want to dwell on this, but 15 minutes for some people in some fairly intimate environments would be considered a long time. It might not even pick that up. Yeah. Look, it's, yeah, I don't know quite where you're going with that one, uh, PVO. Um, <laughs> well, we're running out of time quickly. Which is and, do you have the, and do you have the phone with you in those times is, uh, is another question. <laughs> That's true. I'm, I'm far too old for such speculations. Um, and on that less than edifying note, PVO, we must uh, wish people well in whatever decisions they make and whatever they're doing at home. And over to you for the goodbyes. We'll talk to people very soon. There's a lot more to talk about. God, I mean, this thing. I, I feel like we need to do a podcast soon where we actually do a coronavirus-free podcast. Why don't we try to pick a time to do that sooner rather than later? There's a lot of other stuff to talk about. No doubt about it. Your dog says it's time <laughs> up. So we'll see. It does. Take care. See you, mate. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I tell the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell, along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubelin. And I spoke with Mr Jubelin not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.